people. I wonder if you remember the WWJD bracelets. Here's some chuckles. Remember those? If, if you were around the church in the 1990s, uh, especially if you were in a youth group, you certainly remember them. Now, these little bracelets, these friendship bracelets were meant to be a reminder to ask yourself as you went about doing life and making decisions, you would ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? And that question, what would Jesus do, has a curious history. And so what I didn't do is I didn't ask for a raise of hands uh, for anyone who thought that was a great idea or it was a terrible idea because we don't want to split the church. <laughs> but I will say that the, uh, the phrase, the question itself has a curious history. As the story goes, it was 1989, and uh, Janie Tinklenberg, a youth group leader in Holland, Michigan, had about 300 of these bracelets made for her youth group. And she encouraged the youth to commit to wearing them for a full month. And of course, the idea caught on and spread like wildfire across the country. But that's not really the beginning of WWJD. G Janie Tinklenberg got her idea from a book that was written nearly a hundred years before. In 1896, a minister, Charles M. Sheldon, wrote a little book titled, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? That's where she got the question. The Reverend Sheldon, though, was an avowed Christian socialist, and he used the question and his book to help popularize the social gospel movement, which was in its early stages. Uh, the social gospel, if you don't know, is a movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that tried to redefine the gospel in terms of social justice and the transformation of society. They wanted to bring the kingdom of God to earth by social action. Well, Reverend Sheldon's book was very influential. It sold over 100,000 copies within just a few months, and it went on to become one of the best-selling Christian books of all times. So now that you know that little bit of history, you might be thinking, oh, I should get rid of that WWJD t-shirt that has been in the closet for 30 years, but not so fast. Before you get rid of your t-shirt, you should know this. While the Reverend Sheldon may have tried to pervert the question, it was in use long before he published his book. As early as 1880, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was using this exact question in his sermons, and I think he was rather fond of it. Uh, he used it at least 19 times, I found, in 13 of his sermons. Of course, the question goes back even further than Spurgeon. The idea is found in the 14th century devotional, The Imitation of Christ. And some would even argue that the question goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul, who told the church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So whatever you think of that question itself, you should at least acknowledge that it's not entirely without warrant. There's a sense in which Jesus is the example or the pattern that you are to follow. 
Jesse called our attention to this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. That's the verse where Reverend Shelton took uh, his book. So, if you're uncomfortable with WWJD, let me propose a different question this morning, and it should be catchy. HDJS, how did Jesus suffer so that we can follow Him? For us, that is what we want to answer this morning. How did Jesus suffer, and how are we to follow Him? First, though, let's get our bearings. We're in the Apostle Peter's letter to believers who've been scattered across Asia Minor. They are scattered and a suffering people. At the very least, they're being slandered and spurned by society because of their faith in Christ. Peter, building on the firm foundation of the gospel, urges these believers, these exiles, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, among the pagan nations, Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the glory of God is what Peter was ultimately aiming for. He assumes that this was the aim of these exiles as well. And the way that happens in their exile and in their suffering is that they are to do good Then the pagan society around them might take notice, see their good deeds, and ultimately glorify God with them. That's the context of where we are this morning. Then Peter gets specific. The good deeds of these exiles, that is the good that can be seen by society, includes submitting to human institutions. So for the sake of the Lord, that is for His glory... Christian citizens submit to their governing authorities. Christian slaves submit to their masters. Christian wives submit to their husbands. And Christian husbands honor their wives as co-heirs of God's grace. As Peter comes to verses 8 through 12, he shifts from talking to wives and husbands, and now he speaks to all believers These are believers living in community and living in this pagan society. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter lists five qualities here that make for a loving, cohesive community of Christian exiles. It's interesting, he just merely list them. He doesn't say exactly what these look like in community, but the qualities are such that it makes it clear that he's addressing a community of believers. These qualities, though, overflow to those outside the community, to society, and I think that's what we see in verse 9. So I want to lump Peter's five qualities here in verse 8 under the umbrella of loving one another. That is, these qualities are how you are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're qualities that help form a loving 
cohesive family of Christians. First, you are to love one another with unity of mind. This is the only place in the New Testament where this exact word is used. So to get the full sense of what it means, it helps to look outside the New Testament. In this case, a Greek geographer and historian named Strabo used this word. Strabo lived in Asia Minor. That's the same area where these exiles live. And he died within just a few years of the crucifixion. So he's a contemporary. He used this single word, unity of mind, to express a concern that a slave class might rise up and attack the ruling class. He said it would be very difficult for the ruling class to defend against this. And here's what he wrote. It would be difficult for the ruling class to counterattack the slaves because they were not only numerous, but they were all of one mind, regarding themselves as virtually brothers of one another. That captures what Peter is describing here, being of one mind, regarding yourselves as brothers of one another. You are to be like-minded, like a healthy family is like-minded. Not that you all think alike, but on the core matters of what you believe, you are unified in your thinking. This is one of the reasons we recount the Apostles' Creed every week when we come together. Because it's in those core beliefs that we as a family have unity of mind. Unity of mind is one of the building blocks of a loving, cohesive family of Christians. Christians who are living in exile. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Not only must you have unity of mind though, you must also have sympathy for one another. Sympathy literally means to feel with, to enter into, or to share the feelings of another. It's to be affected by the condition of your brother and sister. If one member suffers, this is Paul, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice. The way that that happens, the way you suffer together and the way you rejoice together is because of the sympathy that you have for one another. If a friend fractures her ankle and you feel something of what she feels, you sympathize with her pain, you understand it, you may have experienced something similar, and in a sense, you relive that pain with her, you sympathize with your friend. If you cannot sympathize with your Christian family, you will find it difficult, if not impossible, to contribute to a loving, cohesive Christian community. You must have sympathy. So, love one another with unity of mind and with sympathy. Third, you are to love one another with brotherly love. The Greek word here is Philadelphos. It's the word from which the city of Philadelphia takes its name. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, or as it's known today, the city of brotherly shove. <laughs> Philadelphos means loving someone like a brother or a sister. It's the affection of heart that siblings have for one another. 
It's the kind of love that exists within a healthy family, which tells you how Peter wants you to view your fellow exiles. You guys are a family. If your daughter calls you at two in the morning because her car broke down and she's stranded on the side of the road, you would jump out of bed to go help her. If your own mother was in need of food or medicine, you would never turn her away. And that's the kind of love, the brotherly love that we are to have for one another. This might be one of the things we do well at Living Water Church. We have generous givers among us who regularly designate funds for the benevolence so that our deacons can assess needs as they arise and help your brothers and sisters. I think we're good at that. Where we're weak, I think, is in letting each other know about our needs. You see, we're a rather self-sufficient bunch here. We're happy to tell the deacons about someone else's need, but we're far less likely to mention our own. And that just shouldn't be the case in our family. So fourthly, then, Peter says that you are to love one another with a tender heart. Uh, This is a difficult word. Some translations um, translate it as compassion. The word literally means, get this, to have good bowels or healthy intestines. Luther said he couldn't explain the word except by using an illustration. And here's the illustration he chose. He told the story of King Solomon and the two mothers. Two women lived in the same house and gave birth to baby boys three days apart. One of the babies died during the night, and the mother of the dead child switched the babies and gave her dead baby to the other mother. The women were brought before King Solomon, and the mother of the dead child denied what she had done. So Solomon ordered the living child to be cut in half and half be given to each mother. This story is in 1 Kings 3. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. Catch that phrase. Because her heart yearned for her son. Oh, my Lord, give give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other woman said, He shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. That is a tender heart, that feeling that the mother had for her own child, a heart that yearns. It is tender feelings toward one another. It's the emotion most often attributed to Jesus during his earthly ministry. It's what Paul calls the church in Ephesus to have. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. An early disciple named Polycarp, he was a disciple of the apostle John. He used this word in instructions to elders. And he said that having a tender heart was one of the qualifications for being an elder. Here's what he said. Let the elders be tender-hearted 
and merciful to all. And what's helpful about this is he goes on to describe what it looks like. Bringing back those who wander, visiting all the sick, not neglecting the widow, the orphan, or the poor, but always providing for that which is becoming in the sight of God and man. That's tenderheartedness. It's having a good heart toward others. It is to be moved by pity or by sorrow or by love. It is to feel compassion for one another. It is seeing a crumbling marriage in your community group and being moved with compassion and brokenhearted for them. The fifth quality is humility. Saint Chrysostom calls humility the mother of all graces, and that's true. Just think of all the strife and sin against one another in the church of Christ that would be rooted out if true humility was found among us. The quality of humility is opposite of pride. As the proverb says, one's pride will bring him low. But he who is lowly in spirit, that is, he who is humble, will obtain honor. Humility, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, is to be clothed with lowliness, mildness, meekness, gentleness of spirit and behavior, and with a soft, sweet, condescending, winning air and deportment. These things are like garments to him. And he's clothed all over with them. You know where he got that language? He got it from the letter that we're studying right now. 1 Peter 5, 5, be clothed with humility. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of this. As Paul described to the Philippians, he said they should do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility they should count others more significant than themselves. Let each of you then look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. This is the same command. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You simply can't find a better definition of humility than that. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humility. Five qualities that make for a loving, cohesive family of Christians living in exile. And notice this. All of those qualities are internal. They're not actions. Not directly, at least. Yes, they inevitably overflow in loving action. But first and foremost, they are qualities of your heart. And that's key to understanding how you are to love one another in this body. It must overflow from your heart. Peter now 
makes the natural shift from these internal qualities focused on the exiled community to the external, how they are to live and suffer within this pagan society. These exiles are not of this world, so the world hates them. How then must they live within this world? That's what Peter tells them now. And this is part of the answer to our question, how did Jesus suffer? I'm going to lump what follows here under the umbrella of love your enemies. Because as you'll see, that's how Jesus himself said these very things. Peter is simply telling these exiles what he heard directly from the lips of his Lord. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So love your enemies. And one of the ways that you are to do that, Peter says, is by not retaliating against them. Do not take revenge. Do not repay evil for evil. That's the general principle. Then Peter drills down and gets specific. Do not repay reviling insults or slander for reviling. When you're slandered, don't slander in return. When you're insulted, don't insult in return. When you hear about that email that someone sent about you, don't revile in return. Peter uses that example of slander and reviling because it's one of the ways we know these exiles were suffering. We see that down in verse 16. Peter says that they should be ready to give a reason for the hope that was within them. But they're to defend themselves gently and respectfully so that when, not if, but when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There is nothing more natural, more sinfully natural than the desire to take revenge when you've been slandered. You want to get back at them. You want to set the record straight. You want them to look as bad as they did you. But that's not what believers are called to do. Peter was probably sitting at the feet of Jesus when Jesus spoke these words. Love your enemies. Pray for them who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Peter clearly had those words of Jesus in mind when he wrote this. But he not only had his words, he also had the pattern that Jesus left for us. It was Jesus who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And what greater example of loving your enemies could be fathomed than this, that while you and I were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now up to this point, Peter 
has only told them the negative. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling. As if that were not impossible enough, he presses it further. It's not simply enough not to retaliate or not to take revenge. But on the contrary, he says, verse 9, bless, for to this you were called. These are hard words. Again, Peter leans on both the teaching and the pattern of Jesus. Love your enemies, Jesus said. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So you log on to Facebook and you see that someone who used to be a friend posted some nasty comment about you. It is not simply enough to hold your tongue, not to lash out against her, or not to unfriend her. Peter says, bless, for to this you were called. So instead of blasting her or searching for the perfect meme so you can own her, you stop and you pray for her. Praying is part of what it means to bless them. Bless those who curse you, Jesus said. Pray for those who abuse you. So you pray for the one who slandered you, and then you send her a kind note, and you put a gift card inside. <laughs> it's funny because it's so hard. You positively bless the person who cursed you. That is countercultural. Oh, back to verse 9. Notice here that Peter gives you the basis. He gives you the why. The why behind this radical call to bless those who do evil to you. He says, bless for or because to this you have been called. Think back a couple of weeks ago. We learned in 1 Peter chapter 2 that if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. Jesse said, you've been called to suffer. What a calling. Peter here adds to that. Your calling is to suffer for doing good and then do good to those who caused your suffering. So how are you to love your enemies? by following the pattern of Jesus, by not retaliating against them, by blessing them instead, and thereby embracing your calling to suffer for doing good and then doing good to those who caused your suffering. Embrace that calling, brothers and sisters. One more observation from verse 9. Bless, for to this you were called, and then Peter gives us the purpose that you may obtain a blessing. The result that God intends in calling you to a life of not taking revenge and blessing those who do evil to you is that you may inherit a blessing. So lift up your eyes. Fix your gaze upon that which is yours in Christ. There's a great blessing that is yours. Take courage from that. 
and suffer well. It is worth it. Now, we must be careful here with this text. Peter didn't say that you can earn God's blessing by being a good exile, by refusing to take revenge. He's not teaching a works righteousness that earns God's blessing. This is important for understanding this passage. So let me give you three reasons why Peter's words here cannot be taken to mean that. One, go back to the top of this letter. Go back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and look at what he says. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. What God did here was in accord with great mercy. It was not based upon what you had earned or what you deserved. What God did was an act of pure mercy and grace. He has caused us to be born again. He gave you a spiritual birth. And you can no more take credit for your new birth than you can for your biological birth. He caused you to be born again. To what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, here's what's yours because of what God did. You were born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So reason number one, your inheritance is a result of what God mercifully did for you not a result of what you did for yourself. Therefore, Peter cannot be saying that you can earn God's blessing, earn this inheritance by being a good exile. He caused you to be born again, and He made you an heir of this great blessing. Reason number two, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 We'll look at this a couple of times this morning. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Dying to sin and living to righteousness is not the cause of our inheriting blessing. The cross of Christ is. He bore our sins so that we might die and live, and the order of that is critical. And reason number three, this blessing is an inheritance. You inherit it, you do not earn it. Now, this took me by surprise, not the concept, but the language that we see in the English Standard Version. Take another look at verse 9. It says... Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain, you can circle the word obtain, a blessing. If you've noticed up to this point, I have used the word inherit, not obtain, because I think the, the meaning can be misleading. The difference there can be misleading. Obtain might lead you to think that you can somehow earn this blessing, but the word here is literally inherit. This word is used 18 times in the New Testament, and in every single instance, it is translated by the English Standard Version as inherit, or some form of inherit. This is the only place where there's an exception. In fact, nearly every other English translation does the same. 
So if you're using a King James Version this morning or a New American Standard Version or if you're using a New International Version, you will see all of them use the word inherit. Now, to obtain is not a bad translation, but I do see how it can be misleading. But the word itself leaves no room for confusion. This blessing is inherited. It is not earned. So here's the point. Love your enemies. This is your calling. Embrace it. Then let the fact that God in His great mercy through the resurrection of His Son Jesus from the dead, who caused you to be born again to your inheritance, let that truth motivate you to live a radical, countercultural life of not repaying evil for evil, but on the contrary, blessing those who do evil to you. Now let's look at verses 10 through 12. This is a beautiful but difficult portion of our text. Peter reaches back to the Old Covenant and he quotes five verses from Psalm 34. Here's why. Many of these exiles to whom Peter was writing would find Psalm 34 not only familiar but comforting. It's a psalm of thanksgiving about the Lord answering the prayers of an exile and delivering him from suffering. David wrote this psalm. King Saul tried to kill him, and he was on the run. So he fled to Gath. That's a territory of the Philistines. These people were arch enemies of Israel. If you remember, this is the hometown of Goliath, the giant. Realizing the danger that he was in, David began acting like a madman. And he let drool run down his beard, and King Achish bought it, and he threw him out. David escapes with his life. He gives glory to God, and he writes this beautiful song of thanksgiving about it. So you can see why this psalm would be meaningful to these exiles. And Peter uses five verses of this psalm to support the argument he just made in verses 8 and 9. He uses it to support his argument and to motivate the exiles to follow the pattern of Jesus. He gives five motivations here, verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is this man? Who is this man that desires to love life? Who wants real and lasting joy? Who's not interested in the fleeting joy of food or drink or money or power, but desires the everlasting joy rooted in union with Christ? It is the believer it is the believer who has inherited the blessing of verse 9. Look back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at verses 20 through 21. It is the believer 
whose sins were born in the body of Christ on the tree. It is the believer who thereby has died to sin and now lives to righteousness. It's the believer whose fatal condition has been healed by the wounds of Christ. Therefore, it is the believer who with transformed heart has the will and the power to follow in the steps of his Lord, to follow his pattern of suffering for doing good. The first motivation then is this, joy. It's the believer who desires to love life. He is the one then who keeps his tongue from evil, verse 9. He doesn't repay evil for evil. He is the one who keeps his lips from speaking lies. He doesn't repay reviling for reviling. He is the one who turns away from evil, verse 11. He is the one who does good, verse 11. And he is the one who pursues peace. This believer blesses those who cause his suffering, and he follows in the footsteps of his Lord. The second motivation is like the first. Who is this man who desires to see good days. These good days are in contrast to evil days. Who is this man who wants to see good days, especially the never-ending good days of the life to come? It is the believer again who has inherited the blessing of verse 9, who with transformed heart has the will and the power to follow in the steps of his Lord, to follow his pattern of suffering and to repay evil with blessing. Motivation number three, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is this man? Who is this man who desires joy, who wants to see good days, and therefore obeys? It is the believer, because he is the one who believes that Christ bore his sins in his body on the tree, that he might live to sin, live, he might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is that believer who has died to sin and now lives to righteousness. The eyes of the Lord are on that man. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And it is a singular blessing for the eyes of the Lord to be upon you. If he is for you, that is. He is a good father. He is attentive and cares for his children. His caring eyes are always upon them. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So motivation number three, the eyes of the Lord are upon you. Notice the language here in verse 12. Peter refers to the eyes, the ears, and the face of the Lord. These are figures of speech that speak to us something about God. To have the eyes of the Lord upon you means that He is for you. He's not just watching you. He's watching out for you. Motivation number four. Who is the man that cries for help? You can imagine the comfort that would come 
as these exiles would plead their case to their God. They would want to know that He heard them, that His ears were attentive to them. Well, it is the righteous man, it is the believer who the Lord is attentive to his prayers. Peter here is circling back to what he had just told the believing husbands in chapter 3, verse 7. Live with your wives in an understanding way and show them honor. If you don't, your prayers may be hindered. There are spiritual consequences for not showing proper honor to your wives. That's a motivation for husbands. Here the motivation is for all believers. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. Motivation number five. The first four were positive. Motivation five is negative. John Piper says the first four were carrots, and this one is the stick. To feel the force of this motivation, look at the way David finishes the sentence in Psalm 34, 6. The psalm goes this way, and Peter Peter doesn't finish the sentence, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is a serious warning, strong language. The face of the Lord, for it to be against you is for He Himself to be against you, which is a terrifying thought. For the unbeliever, this is a warning of judgment. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. For the believer, though, this proves to be a powerful motive to glorify God. If it were not for the great mercy of your God that caused you to be born again, His face would be against you as well. Therefore, glorify Him in how you respond to evil done against you. You see, the opposite of the Lord's face being against you is the Lord's face shining upon you. That's the language of the blessing with which Aaron, the brother of Moses, was to bless Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So let Psalm 34 support you and motivate you to follow in the footsteps of your suffering Lord. Joy, good days, the eyes of the Lord upon you, the ears of the Lord attentive to your prayers, and the face of the Lord shining upon you, not against you. Well, let's close with the question we began with. What would Jesus do? Well, for this text at least, I think there's a far more important question to ask, though it's related. How did Jesus suffer? And how does Jesus want you to suffer? Well, we're going to let Peter answer that question. Listen to his God-breathed summary of the answer to that question. This is chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. It is a gracious thing... When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. If, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this 
you have been called. All of this should sound very familiar now. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. So there are your marching orders. Brothers and sisters, follow in the steps of your Lord. Now, what's the pattern to follow? How did Jesus suffer? Verse 22, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. That's the pattern. Now, how is that even possible? Here's the power. He Himself, this is verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are terribly difficult words. Father, I know that the desire that rises up to retaliate, to bite back, is so strong. Father, I know that you have called us to something far better. You have called us to bless those who caused our suffering. Father, we need your grace to be able to do that. And so we look to you. Father, help us to appropriate all of these motivations that you've given us in this text. And Father, I pray that you would be glorified in the way we, res we respond to those who do evil to us. And we ask that the end that Peter had in mind would take place, that society would take notice, that they would see our good deeds and glorify you. So, Father, may all be for your glory and for the glory of your Son, Jesus. We ask this. Amen.